0: You are listening to a recording of an event entitled Online Hate and the Santa Clara Principles, hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Kyle Matthews of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're very pleased to have an interesting online discussion today about online hate speech and the Santa Clara principles. Uh, For those of you who don't know, um, in 2018, a group of organizations and academics and thought leaders came together to look at how to deal with uh, content moderation on social media platforms, particularly looking at a whole set of issues, including hate speech. Um, so it's very fascinating to have discussion about the Santa Clara will say in the Canadian context because uh, some of you might know uh, the Canadian government has been struggling trying to come up with uh, a comprehensive policy about how to deal with uh, misinformation online, looking at, at online hate, misuse of social media platforms by, uh, by hate groups, extremist groups, be it on the far right, be it to ISIS. Uh, so, so this is a, an issue and I think um, by bringing three experts together we can have a very fascinating discussion that might be able to uh, forward further uh, public policies here in Canada. So today I'm joined by three expert speakers. Um, The first is David Green. Um, I first uh, got the chance to meet David online with a discussion with the UN Office for the French and Genocide, in which uh, the UN Global Hate Speech Framework is trying to be implemented through the UN. Uh, From that, uh, for those who don't know David, he's a senior staff attorney and and civil liberties director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Um, and the Santa Clara principles that he's been working on first came about in 2018, and there's three really interesting principles about numbers, notice, and appeal. I'll let David in a second talk about that. Um, Our second expert speaker is Heidi Torek. Um, Heidi is an associate professor at International History and Public Policy at UBC, uh, very glad to have you with us, Heidi. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And our third expert speaker is Chris Field, who's the policy lead for platform governance at CG, the Center for International Governance and Innovation. So thank you very much. I'd like to maybe give the floor to have to ask David to maybe talk a bit about in more detail what the Santa Clara principles are and how it relates to the issue of online hate speech. Thank you, David. Sure,
1: uh, thank you, Kyle and um, I'm happy to be here and talk about the Santa Clara principles so the Santa Clara principles in in short are an effort to put a human rights framing on content moderation, recognizing that the 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 intermediaries that that channel much of the of the speech online from users to their audiences. Uh, that there, there's a great deal of content moderation uh, uh, going on on all of them. And that could be because of uh, concerns about hateful speech or, or really anything. There's many categories of speech that get removed uh, by the platforms, both the dominant ones and the smaller ones. And recognizing that that type of content removal, and not just removal, but even you know, differential treatment, like maybe demonetizing it or or uh, giving it less of a preference Um in algorithmic uh, news feeds and things like that, that, that this, these can have uh, serious, serious human rights consequences. And so the groups that uh, came together to create Current principles were thinking about how can we, uh, recognizing that, uh, that these companies in me- most legal systems have a right to decide what content they pass through um, and that in many situations, you know, reasonable people will agree that the, that there's good reasons uh, at times to remove content, but nevertheless, how can they do it in a way that's respectful of human rights? And the Santa Clara principles, as Kyle said, uh, came out of a meeting in 2018 that really just tried to sketch some very broad principles um, with three main principles. Um, Numbers. This is the idea that companies should publish the numbers of posts removed and accounts permanently or temporarily suspended due to violation of their content guidelines. This is a basic transparency thing. That if you're going to remove uh, content or moderate in any way, that you should you should post those numbers um, and give people information uh, about uh, how many posts removed, that their um, uh, how many posts removed and and why their posts are removed. Um, the second principle is notice, that companies should provide notice to each user whose account is taken down or account is suspended about the reason for the removal of the suspension. Again, a real basic transparency principle, the idea that if your speech is treated differently in some way, that you, first of all, that you know it is, that it's not invisible to you. Uh, and, if you're, and same thing if your account is suspended, um, and, that, um, and that you know why. Um, that the that the platform, the intermediary, can point to something in their rules that you have that you have violated, um, and then the third principle is out of appeal. Just the real fundamental human rights idea that companies should provide a meaningful opportunity for timely appeal of any content removal or account suspension and what the Santa Clara principles tried to do was just put some really minimal, minimal standards for this, um, guaranteeing some type of human review by a person or panel persons who are not involved in the, in the initial decision, um, an opportunity to argue your side, present additional information and notification of the results of the review. So that was the Santa Clara principles as they were phrased in 2018. And we really sort of set them out into the world and hoped that they would be adopted and, and, um, and, and, and there would even be some experimentation. And I'll just wrap up by saying that what we're doing now, uh, uh, two years later, is looking at the Santa Clara Principles and seeing how have they worked, what, what, is, what needs to be filled in. Um, and, and we have an open consultation going on that. And I'm encouraging everyone here watching uh, to participate in that. And you can find that at santaclaraprinciples.org. Um, and there's a link to the open
0: consultation there. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, David. Um, I think there will be a lot of Canadian uh, academics and um, civil society actors as well as government people that would be interested to look at the Senate Core principles and give some feedback because there's a lot of interest in Canada about how to deal with online hate and also what we're seeing currently, um, particularly the uh, the campaign against Facebook about companies pulling out advertisements from Facebook for not Dealing with um, hate speech as well as others would like, and we've seen a couple of large stream Canadian banks, large Canadian banks actually join that movement. so um, it's it's definitely in the news and in the interest of many people. I'd like to now turn to Professor Heidi Torek. Heidi, could you perhaps talk a bit about your expertise and work on this and 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 how you think it's important to the Canadian context?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. And and I think David has rightly pointed out some of the sort of basic principles that, that weren't being laid out before 2018. And I would add that those principles of number, notice and appeal have, I think, been a great way of just laying out some of the basic stakes that many of the people using these platforms didn't realize were unavailable to them, that if something was taken down, for example, they would have uh, no appeal. In the case of Instagram, a huge platform, it was only in May 2019 that appeal was even instituted on those takedown notices. So to go back to what I've been working on, as you said at the beginning, I'm a professor of history and public policy. So the way that I became interested in this field was that I'm a historian who had studied the history of communications and particularly how Germans in the first half of the 20th century tried to control world communications and how they used the new technology of radio to do so and how it led to, of course, uh, one of the worst genocides of history, uh, the Holocaust, the way that new technologies were used to spread anti-Semitism, racism, and homophobia around the world. So as uh, things were unfolding over the past few years, I could see many parallels, but also ways in which this history was incredibly important to help us understand what was going on today, the ways that there could be terrible unintended consequences from people who were trying to preserve democracy in different ways. So I became interested particularly in this because Germany was one of the first countries to really put in any kinds of laws or principles to try to push social media companies to enforce what were national laws against hate speech within those territories. So in the case of Germany, this was really one of the first countries to create a law, which is known in its short form as... NetsDG, which pushes social media companies to respond to complaints within 24 hours about content that violates 22 statutes of German speech law. And this emerged from several years of the German government trying to work with companies and saying, look, you're not adhering to our national laws with the content that's being produced uh, within our country, lots of deep frustration. Uh, Then there was a German election in uh, 2017, and this was part of what pushed the German government to act quite quickly to push through uh, this law. Um, And this law which is sometimes known as a hate speech law um, is a little bit of a misnomer because it's in fact an enforcement law of German statutes of speech law that existed offline that are now being enforced online. Um, And this in some ways has set a lot of the conversation around hate speech, um, including in places like Canada. The idea that one thing that really needs to happen is that hate speech law that exists for the offline world for say leaflets, pamphlets, Uh, radio, TV needs to be enforced in an online space and global companies that have global terms of service need to now start to adhere to national laws. So that's, I think, a lot of what has been happening and there are quite a few people within the, the human rights sphere who are also very concerned about this development so on the one hand uh, there's the push from democratic countries to say that companies need to adhere to national laws and the canadian government too there are three ministries that have in their mandate letters that they need to try and institute something that looks a lot like next dg and on the other hand there are questions about whether this can be used and abused by uh, authoritarian countries and whether there are problems with the way in which something like NextDG has been created that i'm certainly happy to talk about. Um, So the final thing that I'll say is one thing that I've just wrapped up is being involved in a transatlantic working group that was composed of um, some people who were civil servants, uh, former politicians, people from the companies and from think tanks trying to see if we could figure out solutions that could work on both sides of the Atlantic, recognizing that democracies may have more in common than they have that, that divides them. And things like the Santa Clara principles, thinking about how to improve appeals, for example, was one of the things that we were talking about
0: thank you heidi and I, I i agree with you there's been a lot of talk uh in canada about looking at the german laws as ways to regulate hate speech on social media platforms particularly a, a large american tech firms um and so that's we're really trying to struggle and find out what's the right regulatory framework to to deal with this and nobody has a perfect answer and and, and um but but it's fascinating that your your research and your work on this is having an impact um on our public policies now i'd like to ask uh, Chris Beal is a former government executive and now working for CG about his view on these issues. And 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 uh, so, so Chris, the floor is all yours. Great.
3: Thanks very much, Kyle. Thanks very much for, for including me in this uh, session today. It's a, it's a great opportunity. And I think uh, really timely as, as we sort of look now, as we talked about the Facebook advertising boycott, but also, you know, we're in a really interesting place um, where I don't think we really thought we would be in terms of, you know, we sort of, a month ago, if you'd said that our focus today wouldn't be on COVID-19 disinformation, but would actually be looking at some of the international fallout from Black Lives Matter, some of the online hate that's sort of coming out of out of a lot of the conversations, um, I think it just kind of points to how much this inf- this information ecosystem shifts, and how we really need to be uh, plugged into each other, working together, and and sort of having these kinds of conversations to make sure that we're aware of of how these how these issues evolve and what we can learn from them. Um, actually it's perfect coming right after Heidi sort of summed up where she where she's been what she's been working on recently so as, as you introduced I'm the policy lead of, on platform governance at the Center for international Innova- governance innovation and what I'm going to be doing what I'm doing there we just started a little while ago but we're launching we have launched a, um, a network of civil servants working on these issues worldwide in sort of a wide swath of kind of areas so people working in everything from antitrust Uh, platform governance, sort of coming at the issues of platform governance from a, from a competitive competition point of view through people working on countering violent extremism online, people who have focused on disinformation, electoral integrity and all these kinds of things. And one of the reasons we've done that is we wanted to bring together um, as we approach this issue, as we tackle this issue. And I think the sort of Santa Clara principles is kind of a guiding way to think about this issue for today is, is really effective. It's there's a recognition that while we in, while governments tend to sort of segment things into silos or tend to consider issues as independent problems, when we look at the online world, these things really are tied together. And if we're going to come up with a coherent solution, that coherent solution needs to be one that kind of touches on all these different areas of of policy and all these different government areas of action. But I think too, there's um there's a growing need and a growing recognition. And and you know Heidi t- talked about the uh, the Nessigi law in Germany, but there's a recognition that. This is these problems are being tackled, and governments are experimenting. They're trying out different things, but there isn't always a place for governments to work together. I think governments uh, in the democratic system and in the international system have developed really uh, effective networks for multilateral engagement and, and bilateral engagements, but very much within sort of a foreign affairs framework. So, um, Canada, like other go- go- governments, does very well at connecting with our partners internationally and worldwide. Um, we um uh, can cooperate effectively on you know building international treaties on on developing international models there are some great multilateral networks built up that deal with data privacy these kinds of issues but when we look at the solutions or or at least the the sort of the potential solutions for problems around you know the online off, online world and really how we can sort of uh, find ways to um, push our views of what the offline how the online world should reflect our individual countries' online worldviews it really falls in a lot of domestic area of policy creation. And we're not always as good at connecting domestic partners between governments. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with the network we're building is actually enable domestic partners in in countries, not necessarily with similar legislative structures, but actually similar um, values-based structures or who have similar approaches to these challenges and try and find ways to learn from each other, share ideas, uh, and it, it ultimately sort of come up with ways to actually develop Uh, and implement policies that are coherent across a number of different countries and enable us to um, tackle these sort of broad platform governance challenges, which I think really underpin the online harms challenges um, in a coherent way across across a number of nations. In, In doing this, we're also creating an academic network that that will sort of underpin this and ground this in good evidence. Um, This is all within a framework of something called the International Grand Committee on Disinformation. Happy to talk about it further, but just to kind of put this in a context, this is a group of legislators, parliamentarians, that met first in England, uh, in the UK a few years ago. They've since met in Canada, in Dublin. And what's neat about it is they really try to tackle issues of Platform governance, not from a party political perspective, but actually from sort of a nonpartisan. Let's get into the issues. Let's understand what these things are and how they tie together. And so we're sort of taking, I guess you could say, the the um, the moral the, the moral direction, the, the sort of that idea behind this, and trying to say how can we tie public servants and academics together into a similar network working these issues through. And I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: Yeah, thank you, Chris. I mean that's fascinating, and I think it's it's really important to work with parliamentarians across. Uh, partisan divides. Um, it's it's really important, and I, I think that the work you're doing is going to make a great contribution to advancing cooperation between democracies and civil society organizations. That that in democracies, civil society groups like my my think tank or my colleagues can interact um, with legislatures in authoritarian states. Not possible. They just doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. it's really clear. Uh, I would like maybe my first question is to David. David. Um, you're, you're based in the United States, the work of the Santa Clara Principles comes out of, of the US. And one thing that interests me is that um, we all know in the US Constitution, freedom of expression is very important, freedom of speech. And you, you noted that people behind the Santa Clara Principles say that the fundamental aspect of human rights is one of freedom of expression. To, to me, maybe you can talk, I'd like to ask you about how you guys came to, to see this through the freedom of expression lens and how difficult is this right now in, in what is a really polarizing political environment? Because in some cases, freedom of expression and hate speech are, are sometimes seen as the same now when, when they're quite different. And I'm wondering if you could just expand on, on that aspect.
1: Yeah, so um, I I should say the Santa Clara principles were it, it was a, the initial meeting was largely uh, U.S. organizations. Uh, there was some. Uh, participation from at least one academic in New Zealand and some organizations in Europe, um, and and indeed one of the reasons we're doing the call for submissions now um, is to get a greater international perspective in it. And we've been conducting workshops all around the world for that purpose. Um, but the moment in the in the US is very interesting now. I mean. Uh, I think as, as many people know, when you can talk about hateful speech in many legal systems and there's a line between uh, what is legal and what is illegal, and in the US legal system, we're, we're usually talking about voluntary removals because there's not going to be either a, a legal compulsion under US law to remove hateful speech, um, and and, um, and because that speech is typically not not illegal, in fact, it's typically protected. Um, we are it is an interesting moment uh, I, I think almost every day in the u.s now we we see you know I, I've been doing free speech work for over 20 years and i've've I've when I first started it, it was a very easy observation that this was not something that lined up you know along political lines it wasn't like there was one side of the political debate that was pro free speech the other side that wasn't um everybody everybody across the political spectrum had certain speech that they were sensitive to, and other speech that they found completely, completely benign, and didn't understand whether people were sensitive to it. Um, and I, and I think we really see that play out every day now, where we see, um, you know, where we see you know, people. T- Calling themselves champions of free speech and calling for their speech to be heard and yet criticizing uh, somebody else's speech, so we've we've seen you know in the U.S. in the course of a week we saw protests, um, both uh, some protests uh, you know coming from one side of the political spectrum, you know protesting. Um, uh, some of the shut, some of the COVID-related uh, shutdowns, um, and then some protests, largely from the other side of the political spectrum, uh, regarding the the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the and the police brutality uh, issues. Um, and, and here we really saw where you know, from my perspective, where the legal principle remains the same, right? The idea that we're preserving the right of everybody to have the ability to protest, um, and hateful speech, I think, becomes a very uh, a very difficult thing. Uh, here because um, I don't think anyone disputes that there are legitimate concerns and harms and things and that it is, and much of the speech might be illegal in other, other legal systems. But we also see how, um, at least our experience in the U.S. and in other places internationally, is that this is also like any basis for censorship um, is subject to abuse. And so we have seen the platforms, for example, um, not recently, but uh, historically, actually removing Black Lives Matter content from their sites because it's marked as hateful speech, because it's marked as speech that's that's, that's uh, discriminatory on the basis of race and that it's critical of white people. Um, and so it's really difficult to build um, these types of inherent discriminational principles into um, you know somebody's terms of service, uh, where they're trying to describe what they, what they, what speech is and is not permitted on their sites. I, I hope I answered your question, Kyle.
0: No, I, yeah, thank you, David. You, you did. Um, I would like to ask now um, my two Canadian colleagues, um, Haiti and Chris, um, if you could, uh, if you would both be interested in commenting about what is unique about the Canadian context background for online hate and disinformation? What is the Canadian context? I know um, Heidi mentioned we have four uh, cabinet ministers that have a responsibility for this, but but given your work in Canada, um, what do you see is unique to the Canadian context? Heidi, would you like to, to maybe start off?
2: Uh, sure. <laughs> so I guess we can, um, one of them, sort of very unique Canadian context is the last decade of, of questions around uh, what types of law there's actually going to be. In 2013, the, the Conservatives removed a provision on hate speech from the Human Rights Act. And in the last parliament, there was some discussion about whether to reintroduce that that got uh, quite heated along uh, party political lines in different ways. So there's that's a very specific Canadian context. I think I'd, I'd mention maybe three others. One is the, the the bigger context of this which is not just questions around hate speech but also uh, disinformation. How do we regulate content in an online environment and before the last election the new election modernization act tried to take some steps to, to deal with online advertising, foreign interference and to create greater transparency through ad archives and that was something that, that was actually uh, praised around the world with Canada being seen as one of the first countries to really implement new election laws. So that's, I think, quite specific to the Canadian context, the idea this was implemented, and it seems to have worked. Um, the second would be the new NAFTA, that Canada, along with Mexico, is one of the countries in quite a specific free trade agreement with the US. And there's some disputes among scholars as to what this exactly means for, for platform governance. But there's some uh, potential, maybe Chris can speak more to this, that it might constrain uh, Canada's room for maneuver in a different way than other countries. Um, And then thirdly, I would say that embedded within uh, the Canadian Constitution approach is the idea of multiculturalism. So that what you do with content is not simply to prevent hate speech, but that also you promote promote in different ways multicultural content. And I think there's there's a big question that multiple ministries, but particularly Heritage is dealing with, is what does that look like in an online environment where it's quite hard to tell who is being delivered, what kinds of content, so that it's not just about this question of, hate speech, uh, removals or demonetization, but also what is being promoted and presented to Canadians.
0: Chris, would you like to uh, maybe make some comments on the Canadian context?
3: Uh, absolutely. No, thank you. And, and just to build on what Heidi was saying, and maybe take it a slightly different focus for a moment. I think there's some also really interesting things um, about Canada that are that are worth sort of kind of thinking about as as we look at these issues here you know one of them for 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 me as as we kind of consider these areas is that we have an interesting demographic context in which these things are operating right so i mean canada has a historical um multicultural context as as heidi talked about we have you know we now the government launched an anti-racism strategy that is sort of trying to address some of these the the sort of anti-black racism and some of these other elements but it's largely falling on a system where over a number of years we have a relatively according to polling we have a relatively good belief in government institutions levels of civic engagement um uh you know relatively strong welcoming of newcomers that that there are some sort of positive things in, in the Canadian ecosystem that make this an interesting area of uh you know sort of how these things play out, but I think within that there's also some quite worrying trends that that you know, sort of as as we're looking at how these things happen. So uh, Simon Fraser University, the the West Center last year, the year before, put out some polling data that it had done on sort of C- Canadians' belief in democracy and and trust in each other and trust in society, and there were some you could start to see some cracks in 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 that sort of you know societal unity in those sort of pictures of of who we are and how we connect with each other. Sort of the number of people who believed that you know, uh, Canadians born in Canada should have different rights than Canadians born outside of Canada. There were some stats as well that came up during the recent period of COVID-19, and I know we may get to sort of the changes since COVID-19, but that showed relatively large numbers of people who believe in um, in sort of racist I- I- ideas around the virus, around the spread of the virus, that I think kind of... Um, highlighted some of these sort of social tensions that have been under the surface and in, in this sort of view of ourselves as being this welcoming and opening society that kind of show that there are cracks in the foundation. Um, one of them, for example, said that, you know, under 20%, but still a significant number of people in Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto believe that you could catch COVID-19 from sitting next to an Asian person on the bus or that all Asian people ha- had the virus. Um, and, I, and I, you know, one of the things we saw um, as the know uh, disinformation and misinformation spread throughout our information ecosystem in Canada specifically during this period was in addition to the disinformation and misinformation around um, the spread of the virus and public health challenges and public health issues um, we also saw that there was uh, quite there were sort of growing attacks on Asian populations um, refusal of service for people in Asian communities in Canada um, including people from Iran as Iran is one of the early countries that had large numbers and so I mean, I think sort of Canada's overall context, I think there's there's a, a, a positivity on our, our uh, demographic systems and our multicultural nature. But I think there are definitely some areas of real concern in terms of social fracturing and social disintegration. Um, you know, and, and I think sort of one of those things as we look to solutions and especially as we look to... Um, our civil society partners, and to government and to academics, is to say, how do we address those issues? There's just to mention another quick study that recently came out, it's worth taking a look at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, put out a piece on racism, uh, online and offline racism in Canada, uh, for public safety, that really starts to track some of these trends as well. I think, though, you know, as we're looking at how we approach these, um, we're also well positioned from the size of our information ecosystem, and from the government institutions, as I said, that are set up. And so something I think that kind of uh positions as well and Heidi talked a little bit about um the you know some of the government approaches ahead of the federal election but one of the things Canada's done that I think other countries have not and I think you know as we look at Canada as a, as a model to kind of pass pass on and 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 share with with our international partners is I think from very early on we consider this to be uh a larger problem than simply you know, disinformation was around issues of foreign interference and interference in our elections. And I think we sort of recognize that any solution would need a holistic sort of whole of Canada solution. So it's not something there's a role only for government, it's more there's a recognition that there's a role for government, there's a role for civil society, for academia and for others. And so for instance, there were moves to um, build on di- digital media literacy funding to increase people's knowledge um, of, of the risks of being online, of understanding the system, Heidi had mentioned uh, when David first laid out the principles, you know, that one of the great things about this is this showed to people, these, you know, these issues of um, that they're being exposed are actually a problem, you know, within a couple of years, there were stats uh, that said, you know, something like 50 or 60% of Canadians didn't realize that their Facebook feed was moderated or that it was algorithmically driven. And so sort of helping people to understand what they're looking at online helps them solve these issues. But I'd also say within that sort of overall global approach, Canada's also done some really important work on combating violent extremism online and talking to communities and sort of, and I think a sort of a role for civil society as we sort of think about the Canadian context is, is, um, understanding, meeting people where they are, and sort of understanding how it is that we can talk to some of these communities that are at risk. um, And within our sort of countering violent extremism space, think about how we engage and work together. Um, But, uh, you know, I think overall, um, I I mean, as Canada's working through these solutions, I think what really helps us set up is that as much as these are discrete issues, they're being kind of thought about collectively and, and including as many different partners as possible.
0: Thank you, Chris. And I I really like that you brought together um, the issue of hate speech and misinformation, disinformation. Uh, We've begun to see that some authoritarian states are using uh, social media platforms to to create tension between ethnic groups or groups of people in democracies. We have to be aware of that. Um, We also did an interview with um, uh, Chris Tuckwood of the Sentinel Project on genocide prevention. And he basically had a great quote. He said, hate speech loads the gun but misinformation, disinformation pulls the trigger. Um, and how that is sometimes used in, in cases to foment violence or, or create uh, breakup. Um David, I'd like to turn to you. One of the things that, that I find interesting is that, um, is that there's an issue about artificial intelligence, how algorithms are sometimes used or predominantly used now um, to take down problematic material online that could be seen as hate speech. Um, what do you think are the steps for trying to get, I mean, you've talked about in the Santa cloud principles about, about, you know, the, the the ability to appeal something and to have a, an actual group of people look at it. How much more difficult is that now that we're seeing the large tech companies rely more and more on AI to moderate, uh, content? Uh, well, it's difficult.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, um, I think that I, I don't know if if um, if many of the large companies are are doing automatic removals, but they're certainly doing automatic flagging. So they're they're really relying now on AI uh, to at least identify content, and then it goes to human reviewers uh, to flag. And this was happening before COVID, and it it's only increased really just as a matter of necessity because. Um, if content moderation really can't be done remotely, and there's there's many reasons for that. But this is not; it tends not to be the type of work that moderators can take home with that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that these mod, most of these moderators, and I think this is problematic, tend to be very low-paid contractors. Um, these are not uh, not employees who would otherwise be provided with the resources uh, to set up a home workspace. There's also uh, many national uh, privacy laws actually restrict this type of information. Sort of leaving the workplace, um, and the, and then also this—it's it's an awful job. Being a content moderator is an awful job. Uh, Professor Sarah T. Roberts has written about this uh, fairly extensively uh, about the uh, the trauma associated with content moderation, and and therefore the platforms that have thousands and thousands of content moderators actually also provide them or have to provide them with uh with mental health services on site and so all those things can't really happen with a remote or it's difficult for them to happen with a remote workplace. So we've seen certainly since COVID and since the dispersal out of offices, um, a lot more content moderation, a lot more content moderation, at least the first step, the the flagging process being done by AI. Uh, This does raise concerns with us, especially the areas of misinformation, and hateful speech, because this is some of the speech where it's really difficult for a machine Uh, to to make the contextual decision about whether something is actually hateful or not, whether it's coming from a disadvantaged group or being targeted at a disadvantaged group, whether it's somebody repeating somebody else's hateful speech or misinformation as an advocacy point, as a rallying point, or whether it's the original speaker themselves. All those types of things or decisions are heavily contextual, and we haven't seen AI being able to make those decisions. so we appreciate that there is some human review when it comes to appeals. We, again, we have the issue of you want those appeals to to be human, to be human beings. And um, part of the problem we see here is just you know the great scale of content decisions that have to be made. There are you know, hundreds and thousands of these decisions that have to be made um, on a daily basis, um, and it's just. If, even a, a huge company with a lot of money like Facebook um, or Google where it moderates YouTube and moderates search, um, it, it's difficult for them uh, to do these things. Um, and so there, there certainly is a temptation uh, to use AI to try and relieve some of that content burden. We also see, at least in the US, uh, and we've seen some of this in Europe as well, some pressure from uh, from regulators, um, To try it, to see AI as a solution to some of these problems, especially the problems of scale. Uh, But again, what we see is that, at least currently, the use of AI raises some really um, serious human rights concerns about um, over censorship and removal of material that isn't harmful. Um, and the other thing then is that the use of AI really plays into transparency, uh, where these AI systems tend to be a black box, they tend to not be subject to inspection or audit or external audit that would allow um, somebody to really assess how effective they are and for people whose speech is being moderated to really understand how those decisions are. Mm-hmm. Are being made. So part of our call for transparency in the Santa Clara principles um, is to transparency about automated decision-making processes that are being used.
0: Thank you, David. From from our work at our Institute, the issue of transparency is key. We've had certain cases of human rights activists in in Southeast Asia working to document atrocity crimes against the Rohingya minority uh, we've had human rights activists documenting cases of, of atrocities in Syria, and we've had certain YouTube or Facebook that have taken down, uh, uh, AI has taken down a lot of their posts, a lot of the video evidence, thinking that it was promoting extremism. But In fact, they're trying to build a, a digital archive for eventual prosecution of human rights laws. Um, and maybe a, a question now I'd like to ask, we're going to go to the audience soon. I have a few questions waiting here, but maybe to Heidi and Chris. We talked about the Canadian context about where some of the challenges. But I, w- I wonder if you could talk about some of the opportunities. What makes Canada uniquely situated um, to help um, you know push the Santa Clara principles to push the idea of platform governance? We have an, a, a burgeoning artificial intelligence community. We have important new think tanks and academics coming together. From you, like, what could Canada contribute to this to this discussion? Not just in theoretical perspectives, but in advancing public policy here and, and around the world. Heidi, would you like to maybe start with that?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So I think, you know, having just sat in this, this transatlantic working group, you know, so often when we were having discussions, Canada was kind of a bridge between some of the more broad brushstrokes European ways of thinking about this issue versus broad brushstrokes US-American way. Um, so I see Canada as well as kind of a hinge or a translator in some of these cases, being able to work with people in France, for example, on artificial intelligence, but also because NAFTA and other things having really deep relationships with people in the US. So that's a sort of very basic question of Canada's place in the international world. But I'd also add um, that I think the Canadian government in pushing forward ideas of Um, algorithmic inspection, so algorithmic impact assessments on any algorithms the Canadian government uses has created one example of how we could require that, for example, of of companies. So one way that I've thought about this is to say, um, what if companies have a precautionary principle in their algorithms? You can't tweak them and you can't make them better unless you already do an algorithmic impact assessment, which is a kind of precautionary principle, right? Like run them through, make sure that they're not um, unintentionally uh, deleting, for example, African-American English, something that that we've seen from a study by scientists at Carnegie Mellon, um, or that it's uh, erasing, for example, indigenous, content in different ways. So that's, I think, one thing because of the AI community, but also what the Canadian government has done. So I'd say if we're going to pull up just two things, it would be Canada's role as a, as a bridge between these two dialogues in the US and Europe, and also pushing through these ideas of algorithmic impact assessments as something that should be done by companies as well as by governments. Thank you, Heidi. Um,
0: Chris, would you like to maybe comment on uh, on that question?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's a, it's a great question. And uh, I, Heidi did just sort of steal one of my one of my <laughs> main points, which is, you know, the, the importance that Canada can play is kind of a bridging power. I would also add to that, though, that, you know, partly, and I, and I think maybe we don't take advantage of this as much in this space. You know, I, I think one of the challenges is we very often end up speaking to some of the same people as we're trying to address these issues. And I think Canada can take advantage of some of the goodwill and relationships we have in some of the other parts of the world as well that are dealing with these challenges. So specifically in South Asia, um, uh, East Asia and, uh, you know, some of our relationships with uh, Japan, Taiwan, uh, India, uh, and, and you know, really kind of think about and, and you know, sort of build on some of those kinds of things to say, how do we get people together and, and learn from these various experiences? You know, I think um, th- there was a, a podcast posted on CBC earlier today, which is well worth listening to, that was talking about some of the, the challenges around, um, you know, why it is that the Facebook ad boycott has taken off. And it was saying, you know, in part, it's because it's actually hit us here now. And it was the same thing in 2016, right? The 2016 election happened in North America. And so we jumped on these issues of disinformation. But, you know, when we look at our partners in places like India, they've been dealing with a lot of these challenges uh, for further along. And I think we can kind of, I think there's a there's a benefit coming where Canada comes to these issues that we don't have a lot of the loaded history that some of the other countries involved have that we can actually create some of these connections and and build some of these bridges. Um, but I would also say that when we're looking at um, linking up people, I think there's a huge benefit to Canadian civil society in this space as well. Um, you know on a number of different areas across this. So whether it's uh, countering racism or violence online, or uh, even things like digital media literacy, there's a number of Canadian civil society organizations that have been very active. And I think, you know, one thing we can do um, that I think would make sort of that would sort of help Canada push, push this model out in the world is actually create avenues and venues for those organizations to talk to their international counterparts and to bring, to connect some of the civil society organizations. You know, Kyle, you mentioned, you know, the challenge in, in, um, parts of the world where there's where there are authoritarian governments that are kind of crushing dissent is that there aren't a strong there is not a strong civil society network well one of the things we can do is we can help export those ideas so just to give a a random example of one I'm aware of uh civics which is a a student they run a student vote program in Canada Um, with some support from partners they actually were able to run a student vote program talk about democracy talk about uh, civic engagement of those kinds of issues in Colombia last year uh, in a sort of newly re-emerging democracy and I think you know Look, looking at these kinds of models, I think Canada has a lot of benefit that we can we can bring um, as we sort of look at that kind of translation role and that that middle power role where we can kind of um, without a lot of um, without without necessarily needing to kind of push out or, or be a risk to people that we're pushing onto ideas. We can kind of convene and, and bring people together.
0: Thank you, Chris. So um, we have our first question uh, coming from Facebook. Um, Person online says, so I think this is probably uh, directed towards you, Heidi, but but if anyone else wants to, to chime in, please, you're welcome. But it says, in Germany, Facebook allegedly underreported complaints under NETS DG and was fined what is an ins- insignificant amount for a company the size of Facebook. Will Facebook comply if we finally enforce and strengthen existing laws in Canada? Question mark, And what happens if they don't?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll just give a little bit of background for people who uh, don't spend their lives delving into NetsDG. So basically the way that it was set up was that Um, any company with more than two million unique users in Germany had to respond to any posts that were flagged under the law within 24 hours, or they would face a fine of up to two million euros per post. At the same time, any company that received more than hundred complaints in six months had to produce a transparency report. And when the first transparency reports came out, there were only um, four companies. So Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter, and change.org. Since then Instagram is also in the mix. And when people looked at these uh, reports, they saw, well, Facebook seems to have a tiny, tiny number of complaints. It's quite weird. Um, why would that be? And it seems like actually this was really about the design of how the complaint um, was registered under Facebook. So it was harder to find how to complain under NetsDG. And that seems to have contributed to some of the much, much lower uh, number of complaints. Um, but then subsequently, what happened? was that uh, the German government, the German justice ministry and others investigated and decided that um, Facebook had then been under-reporting complaints and therefore should be fined for being insufficiently transparent, um, but the fine was only 5 million euros. So I think there's a number of things we can draw from that. Um, The first is that basically everybody, including um, free speech organizations, agreed that transparency reports were a good idea. So lots of fights about an SDG, is it good, bad, et cetera, um, but everybody agreed transparency reports were useful um, and that they could be better than what Germany has. So I think that's something that, that we can draw on. What does a really good transparency report look like and how can we actually, rather than just relying on the company's transparency reports, include tiered types of um, acceptable, um, ways for researchers or even government agencies to look and see what's actually really being done there or not um so that's the first thing is we can find some ways to improve on those transparency reports and to ensure that they're actually accurate in meaningful ways it's very hard for researchers from the outside we don't see any examples of why decisions go one way uh, or the other um the second thing that i would say is It's a really important question as to whether the companies will actually comply. This was a big question pre-NetsDG. Companies would say things like, we can't really comply with this. We'd have to have so many more content moderators, et cetera. Um, But it turned out when the law was passed, uh, they did comply. So that also says uh, we can maybe be a bit bolder than sometimes we are in thinking about what the solutions uh, could be, uh, because it turns out that companies can, in fact, uh, break down their numbers by country. (laughs) And they can, in fact, hire many more content moderators who are specifically looking at a certain country's uh, context. And the third thing, what happens if they don't? Um, We have an answer to that from the Election Modernization Act, uh, when Google decided not to serve any ads related to the election, and Facebook decided it would, and it would create an ad archive. So anything we do, I think we have to decide, is the ultimate price of this company not participating in the Canadian market worth it? And in some cases, like the election, uh, we decided that it was worth that price.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, does anyone else, um, either David or Green, uh, Chris, have a comment on the German uh, uh, German question, or should I move to the next?
1: Well, I, I just I just should say that I, I think most people probably know this. We we have not been. Supporters of 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 day gay, um, uh, and find that the twenty four hour requirement is is onerous and 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 tends to lead to to oner- uh, over censorship. Um, I, I think what we're talking about here is the are the transparency reporting uh, parts of it, which which uh, I, I think are different than the compelled uh, the compelled censorship part. Um, although there still are, I still have some concerns with with. Uh, with the type of reporting I, I i would hope that we would look for you know non-regulatory incentives as well for transparency reporting uh, as well which i think for many of these companies tend to be even more tend to be more effective than the regulatory approaches
0: thank you david chris do you have anything to say or should i move to the next question you
3: are welcome to move to the next question i think it's been said
0: okay so uh, we have a question from uh, Ganit ariel Galit asks, if we create an ideal technological ethical ecosystem in Canada, uh, what can we do realistically to incentivize other countries' entities to adopt them? <laughs> How do we do this? I think I think whoever answered this question would probably have a Nobel Peace Prize right now. But <laughs> Chris, you lifted your hand first. I'm going to ask you sure. to uh, take a stab at that.
3: So I mean I think it's a really great question and it, but it, and it's it's you know I would say that this is often our challenge right as we look at these kinds of things and we say we can see a way in which um you know well well Canada is is of course far from perfect uh, as a society in dealing with these issues but you know when we have a good idea we can sort of see how we can we can share it and we can often feel i think paralyzed in terms of it just feels insurmountable in terms of the problem. But I think something that's really emerging in this space that, that, um, and, you know, sort of to blow the horn of the, of the organization we're trying to build, but I, but I think, you know, is instead of trying to bite off everything at once is to kind of say, let's find other partners who share common values, who want to learn from us, who want to learn from each other and really look towards how we build coalitions with people um and, and find ways to share, um, Good ideas to learn from mistakes, to experiment. Simply, you know, to sort of essentially um, incrementally get better and better as we move this forward. You know, I was talking to uh, a couple of experts about this recently, who were, uh, I mean, a little bit negative. They kind of looked at, I mean, that th- we haven't talked about Brazil's law. There are a number of different places where things are are maybe not moving forward in, in the best direction uh, in these areas, but where we can see is we can say the more we can kind of have people talking about these things, the more we can have them sharing, the more we can have them learning, the more we can have them committed to this, the more likely it is over the next, you know, however many years it's going to take us to get there, that we can actually build those coalitions of people who who want to make a difference. I would say, I think a key to making this happen is to making sure that we recognize um, who the right partners are. So, you know, building partnerships with groups of people who actually do share those common ideas and not just necessarily those people with whom we have the closest sort of country relationships. But I think the other thing, too, is recognizing the equal and important roles that different parts of society can play. So, I mean, sometimes we'll we'll have these conversations and people say, well, governments move so slowly or it's so ponderous, or they'll say, you know, why can't things move more quickly? Or you'll see um, governments try to sort of jump on new ideas and get through laws and legislation overnight. And as we've experienced a number of times, right, through whether it's the response to uh, 9-11 and the subsequent anti-terrorism legislation in a number of different countries or any one of these kinds of things these quick responses aren't always as effective but we need to understand that governments when thinking things through and acting carefully can actually they have powers and authorities that can be wielded really effectively but it has to be done in concert and in consultation with civil society organizations that are also linked together and connected and on the basis of good academics i know that sounds very pie in the sky i know that sounds very idealistic but it's, it's one of those things where I think that the, the alternative is to do nothing. And I think, you know, what, what, what Canada needs to do is sort of build on that, um, build on what, what's happened here and see if we can try and sort of affect that momentum internationally while still keeping our, our sort of our challenges at home together.
0: Wonderful. Well, we have about 12 minutes. So I'd like to move to the next question. Um, uh, sorry if another speaker had a comment, but I'd like to move through these and give people the chance. So we have a question from Melissa. I think this might be more directed towards David, but once again, you're all invited to to comment. Melissa asks, "Do you envision the Santa Clara principles as a comprehensive way to address online hate and disinformation, or a part of a larger approach?"
1: Uh, well, it's part of a larger approach. It's it's, and, and I don't think any of us believe it's going to solve the problem, uh, which I uh, which uh, which is a really a difficult problem and and has. You know, great variations uh, internationally. Uh, Santa Clara Principles are really intended to be a framework for dealing with the whole range of content moderation issues. So it's so certainly not limited to online hate and disinformation. Uh, there, there are many types of content and reasons for moderation, some of which we may all think are good and some of which we may disagree with. But Santa Clara Principles uh, were really designed to sort of provide a framework for, for all of that. So it's really part of a larger approach where we're trying to uh, both recognize that there is content moderation, that um, there may be uh, reasons that reasonable people can agree with and and disagree with, um, but how do we protect human rights recognizing that it does does happen? So um, it's really just a, a piece, I think a really important piece of the whole larger ecosystem.
0: Heidi or Chris, do you would you like to comment on 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 this uh, particular question?
2: Maybe I'll just say very quickly that I think this is this is part of a much broader debate where all sorts of different scholars, civil society organizations, etc., are involved. You know, we can see this with uh, what I believe is an upcoming hearing on antitrust in the U.S. Uh, run by the House Judiciary Committee. So there's the antitrust portion. There's the tax policy. Portion as well. You know, these are massive discussions where where some people argue that uh, some of the best ways to deal with these questions are to actually look at the the business structures and to worry less about the individual parts of, of content moderation. I think these are very very live discussions that are also a part of this. um, And that goes back to what a few people have said about the question of scale. So for some people, the answer to the question of scale is a business question that will then solve the other problems. Whereas others say, listen, that won't make such a difference. It'll just become a -a whack-a-mole problem with uh, many different companies. But I'd say pretty much everybody in this space recognizes that there are multiple layers here. And the final thing that I would say is that, of course, we're only talking about a certain subset of companies, but there are others, for example, like Cloudflare, who have been very important in these debates as to whether companies like an 8chan um, can actually exist or not. So we can even just think about this as going lower in in the stack of the internet, if you will, not just the Facebooks of this world, um, but the other companies that actually enable uh, the internet to function in the first place.
3: Thank you, Heidi. Chris, would you have any comments on, on this? Uh, the only thing I'd add that hasn't been said is, you know, I think it's, it, it brings up uh, a question and David uh, referenced this a few minutes ago. It, it comes down to, for me, a little bit of, you know, voluntary compliance measures versus uh, government regulations. And, and you know, I think whatever ultimate solution we come for these kinds of issues, I think will probably be a mixture of both. I, I you know, I think um, one of the things I think that does help, it does help the the platforms and it does help our information ecosystem to have some sort of uh, government regulation of whatever that looks like um, sort of fitting these things in. But to Heidi's point, I think the challenges that, you know, the areas that need to be dealt with, I think, through regulation is is much more sort of at the business level um, than necessarily solely focused on the on the content side.
0: So um, one one question coming is asking, how have we seen online hate change during the covid pandemic? Um, Chris, you talked a bit about we've seen an increase in, in, in anti-Asian commentary online and, 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 and offline. But I'm wondering, have you seen anything um, additional to that take place in the past three months? People under enormous stress, not able to work, frustrated. Um, but I'm wondering if there's something that you've seen that that is that that, that is of concern to the Santa Clara principles and uh, during the pandemic.
3: I- Chris, would you like to? Sure. I could just quickly uh, um, sort of finish the, the point that I'd started previously. So, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things has been, um, I mean, initially there was this burst of, of uh, anti-Asian rhetoric and um, disinformation. What I find really striking, though, is as this period has developed and, and sort of as we think about it as now it's kind of closed off as a disinformation event though it's probably there'll be more issues arise if there is a vaccine that launches i'm sure that the anti-vax messaging will kind of ramp back up and push things out but it's it's that as this, as as it evolved as has happened before in these kind of events there was um an initial burst of sort of some organic content but then a lot of the people who've also been spreading hate and misinformation. So the you know, hostile state actors, but especially the hate groups and the transnational hate groups, they sort of attached onto this and then tied this in, into other narratives. And, and I think one of the things that's happened because there was so much disinformation and so much misinformation in the system around COVID-19 is that it was enabled to be exploited by these actors to really push out their areas of, of interest and areas of, of um, connection. So for example, there's been some interesting study looking at how the wellness community um, specifically, first tying into the anti-vax, but actually it's been exploited by hate groups as well, trying to sort of push this towards uh, um, um, some of the anti-vax messaging, towards some of the sort of white supremacist uh, narratives and some of these kinds of stories, and and you know sort of really trying to push through and 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 sort of take take advantage of. of people's fear, right? Because we're living in a situation where people are looking for authoritative information, they're looking for good messaging, they're not finding it. And so they're going out and looking at that. These these groups have stepped in to take advantage.
0: Thank you, Chris. Anyone else would like to comment on that?
2: Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just add that um, this is certainly something that the WHO, the World Health Organization and other health organizations are very much uh, concerned about and worried about. So the WHO at the moment actually is running something called an infodemiology conference uh, to think about the infodemic alongside uh, the epidemic, which I'm part of that's bringing together a a whole bunch of academics and others to think through, has there been something that's genuinely changed? Um, How would one actually deal with this and and so on? So I think what has happened is unfortunately a a parallel that we've seen with uh, other epidemics in the past, which is epidemics come with an instinct to blame people who are marginalized or somehow outsiders and who is top of mind a different person depends on what time period we're in, um, where exactly you're living. So a lot of these dynamics um, to me as someone who's studied the history of health communications look familiar but then there's the question of what is new and how has the internet enabled different types of hate to be spread much more Quickly, but I would add that this dynamic of a pandemic being used to blame outsiders and cast them uh, in all sorts of racist ways is unfortunately a dynamic we see going back hundreds of years with epidemics.
0: Thank you, Heidi. So we've we've come to the end. I'd like to ask one closing question to David, uh, and then we'll let you go for your your busy schedule. David, how can Canadian academics, um, NGOs, think tanks? Um get engaged in, in in supporting Santa Clara principles. What what concrete action can we take beyond today's discussion and try to, to, to add our, our national voice, our expertise to the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, I I think the first step would really be participating in in the open consultation that's open that that we're having right now. So I'll repeat my plug that I gave earlier, which is if you go to the Santa, Princi- Santa Clara Principles website, santaclaraprinciples.org, and you click on call for submissions, which is right at the top, uh, it will take you to the, the open consultation. Um, uh, the original deadline was actually June 30th, but for various reasons, uh, that's been extended to September 1st. So we, we really are trying to get as much feedback um, from around the world as possible. So you are free to uh, to answer that uh, answer the survey. There are 13 questions there. You can answer as, as many of them as you'd like or provide other feedback. Uh, and what we're also doing as well is encouraging people to um, you know to sort of convene gatherings where they're they're having discussions about these things, either recording those or having someone take notes and send that information in. Because we do find that we're getting a lot of really great feedback from sort of people having live interactive discussions about this instead of just filling them out on their own. Uh, this is an opportunity that's available not only to, you know, academics and researchers and, and civil society, but really to anybody who's an internet user, anybody who is on either side of this, either someone who uh, might have their content moderated or might have content they want, they had hoped to receive, not reach them, um, as well as those who are on the opposite side, those who actually are in the position of having to decide how to treat somebody's content that is coming through one of their systems.
0: Thank you, David. So um, we will share the link to, uh, um, to the website about how people can make comments Uh, about the Santa Clara principles. Uh, We'll share that with our wider network in academia, government, uh, members of parliament, and our international partners. So we will do that. I just want to take this time to to thank David, Heidi, Chris. Thank you so much for taking time with your busy schedule and from the summer to talk to us. Um, We look forward to collaborating with you in the future. And uh, this has been a very fruitful uh, discussion that you shared your knowledge with with a wide range of people. So thank thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you. Thank
0: you.